This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Welcome to our virtual audience, wherever you are in the world. I'm Diane Fugino, a professor of Asian American Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And we're here today to celebrate the release of a new Haymarket Press book, Black Power Afterlives, The Enduring Significance of the Black Panther Party. And I'm excited for this conversation with three powerful speakers, thinkers, organizers, artists. But before I introduce the speakers, I want acknowledgments. So first, I want to thank Haymarket Press for its fierce commitment to independent publishing and for its transformative vision as seen in its many amazing books and important public programs this year alone. Donations from this event will go to Haymarket to support sending copies of this book inside prison. I want to make one quick announcement, which is a new book, The Brother You Choose by Susie Day, focusing on former Panthers, Eddie Conway and Paul Coates. And Haymarket is uh, published this and sponsoring their book event on October 8th. And you can find info on it on the Haymarket Press website. So in this tumultuous year with police killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and so many others, and with the coronavirus pandemic making horrendous the already existing structural inequities, it seems now more than ever that we need to bear in mind lessons from the Black Panther Party. The Panthers are most famous for point number seven of their 10-point platform. Right? We want an end to immediate police brutality and the murder of Black people. Their free breakfast program to address food insecurity continues to be a model to this day. There's so much more to learn from the Panthers' efforts to resist fascism, to develop autonomous community organizations, and to challenge state power. And there are also noteworthy problems, as with any organization, and those too we can learn from. So with respect to this book, right, Black Power Afterlives, the influence of the Panthers continue on. And I would be remiss not to extend my gratitude and acknowledgement to all former members of the Black Panther Party and the Black liberation struggle broadly. To Bobby Seale, Huey Newton, Kathleen Cleaver, and so many others, thank you for your formidable vision and your extraordinary example. It's important to acknowledge our political prisoners still incarcerated today, including former Panthers Mumia Abu-Jamal, Maroon Schultz, and Chip Fitzgerald. And we need to also acknowledge our hard-won battles and victories. So former Panther Jalil Muntaki recently gained parole after nearly 50 years in prison. He is a contributor to Black Power Afterlives, in which Jamil, Jalil writes about the Jericho movement for political prisoners that he helped launch back in 98. Our very best wishes to you, Jalil. 
Marcus and I developed Black Power Afterlife because despite the unparalleled significance of the Panthers, and despite the ways the Black Panther Party circulates among activists today in inspiration and symbolic meaning, in study of their struggles against police violence and programs to address food insecurity, and through cross-generational relationships with former Panthers, there is in fact little by way of a systematic examination of the ongoing influence of the party on later, later generations of activists. So in this book, we seek to explore the afterlife of the Panthers through the circuits, social networks, ideas, practices, and ongoing movements arising from the Black Panther Party. And I want to give just a sampling of the book. So this anthology takes a rare look at Asada Shakur's life in exile in Cuba. The chapter on Michael Zinzin and the Coalition Against Police Abuse in the 80s and 90s in Los Angeles fills in the organizing against police violence between the Panthers and Black Lives Matter. There are chapters on Black August and former political prisoners Sekou Odinga and also Hank Jones of the San Francisco Eight. An interview with Erica Huggins explores the way she coped with the murder of her husband, John Huggins, and her dear friend, Bunchy Carter, and her own incarceration and the forced separation from her infant daughter. The meditation and yoga that she began in prison continues to this day as practices of collective self-care and restorative justice. And she has a powerful story to tell. There are chapters examining the move from Black power to Pan-Africanism, and there are also chapters on the impact of the Black Panthers on today's organizers. Okay, a shameless plug. The book is available for a sizable discount on the Haymarket Press website. I turn to my co-editor, Matef Hamakis. Thank you, Diane. Hotep. Giving thanks to our creator, our ancestors, and our indigenous hosts, I'm very excited to join you to observe this incredible conversation of potent panelists, all of whom across the years I met through my co-editor, Diane Fugino. And tonight, I am blessed to introduce this short music clip, Police Chase. It's taken from Contested Homes Migrant Liberation Movement Suite 2020. It's a free jazz opera filled with combining jazz hip-hop, spoken word, dance, visual art. It's performed by the Afro Yaki Music Collective and the Contemporary Jazz Ensemble in conjunction with members of the University of Wisconsin-Madison's Artivism class. Music composed by Maggie Cousin and our own Black Power Afterlives contributor, Ben Barson, who is carrying on the music explorations of his mentor, revolutionary Fred Ho. The lyrics and vocals are by former Black Panther Party member Mama C, also known as Charlotte Hill O'Neill, and Nejma Nefertiti. I call her the uh, total protein MC, microphone commando. The video by Adam Cooper Taran contains original artwork contributed by Rodrigo Carapia and Kim Intabang. Plus, you will notice the iconic images from one of our panelists tonight, Emery mm -hmm. Douglas. The entire Contested Home 2020 suite can be found on YouTube. So, Police Chase, thank you very much.
Who's coming? The beast running, my teeth stunning. I'ma hit him, make him see something. Mentality, our daily reality. Kill or be killed, my new personality. It's a setup, grab the bag, get up. They talking to fam, my comrades had to get him. Police murder people, lock him up and dead him. They beat his sister down, hit her till she bled, son. Corrupt system, she never got to kiss him. Her son didn't come home, they pistol whipped him, tortured him, stripped him, tried to resist him. Search for no permission, no rights, none given, nothing different, same racism. Bust him in his eye and took him off the prison. Who's the enemy? Shooting at me because of my identity. Bullets full of hate screaming at me with obscenity and penalties. Full blown weaponry, supremacies. No peace penitentiary, recklessly. It's been happening for centuries. Try to take us out, erase all our memories. Accuse me of accessory. That's the recipe. Plant drugs on me while aiming at my sensory. Telling everybody they shot her accidentally. She didn't have a gun on her, coincidentally. Didn't have a gun on her, coincidentally. She didn't have a gun on her, coincidentally. Uh, I hear those sirens. I hear those sirens. Makes my heart beat too fast. My heart beat too fast, y'all. I want to say the thank you to Afro Yaki for their powerful music so clearly shaped by the Panthers with Mama C's narrating and Emery Douglas's images. It is my yeah, absolute... Mama C's right on now. Oh. Just finished. Okay. Thank you to Afro Yaki for your powerful music with former Panthers, Mama C narrating and Emery Douglas's images. It is my absolute joy to get to introduce our speakers for today. Emery Douglas made need no introduction to this audience. He's the former Minister of Culture of the Black Panther Party and one of its longest members. We know his art as the most iconic visual symbols of the Black Panther Party. His book, Black Panther, The Revolutionary Art of Emory Douglas, traces his art and biography in the party. What's lesser known is the way that Brother Emory and his art travel locally and globally to influence radical movements from Chiapa to Cuba to Palestine to Australia and beyond, which is the focus of his chapter in Black Power Afterlife. 
We also have with us Mary Hook, co-director of Song, Southerners on New Ground, a political home for LGBTQ liberation across lines of race, class, ability, age, culture, gender, and sexuality in the South. She's based in Atlanta, and she was at the founding convening of the Movement for Black Lives, helped to start the Atlanta chapter of Black Lives Matter, and is the originator of the Black Mamas bailout to get Black women out of prison for Mother's Day. The Black Panther Party has inspired her activism, and her interview in Black Power Afterlives examined Black queer feminist organizing and wide-ranging topics. Yoel Haley is a criminal justice associate with the ACLU of Northern California. He grew up in Eritrea and moved to California in 2006. As a at the University of California, Santa Barbara, he kicked up much dirt, including helping to initiate and negotiate the far-reaching Black student demands. His chapter in Black Power Afterlives focuses on the African Black Coalition, a California statewide Black youth organization. And one of its campaigns led to the UC divesting, the University of California, divesting from private prison companies. Wherever he speaks, Joel calls forth the influence of the Black Panther Party on his activism. So welcome, Emery, Mary, Joel. Um, I want to start with each of you introducing your activist work and the ways the Panthers have shaped your politics and life. And it's only fitting that we start with you, Brother Emery. Uh, thank you, Diane. Uh, uh, glad to be on this panel with all the distinguished guests that you have today. Uh, my, my name is Emery Douglas. Uh, uh, I came to California in 1951. As when I was about seven years old. Uh, so that tells you I'm about 77 years old at this time in day. And, and uh, I, uh, growing up in San Francisco, there was racism in San Francisco and bigotry, just like it was all upon the rest of the country. Uh, as a young person becoming aware of that uh, and going into uh, 1959 as a kid, watching the TV all the time and three channels, uh, black and white, uh, and all of a sudden, uh, I used to watch the, the baseball games uh, from Cuba with the players, black players playing in Cuba and, and some from the States going to play. And all of a sudden, uh, you, you see the interruption of the TV. Uh, because, uh, and then that was the, not knowing what it was, but it was the start of the uh, Cuban Revolution that took place in 1959. And so uh, I became aware of that later on after I flashed back to looking at TV and seeing it as a youngster growing up in San Francisco, you, you observe, you see on TV uh, as well, the uh, civil rights movement and the hoses being uh, sprayed, young people being sprayed with the whole dog being sick on the marches, all those things. Uh, then from time to time, you get the international news and you see uh, in South Africa, you see the same thing. The tanks in the community, the dogs being sicked on them, all those same things. So, and fast forward to when Fannie Lou Hamer first time went to the Democratic Convention. Uh, I'm still growing naive, but I'm rooting for justice and, and righteousness. And so I see the delegation at the Democratic Convention, they refuse to sit, allow the delegation to represent Mississippi 
because it was all black delegation. I, I, I recall that. And then uh, getting involved at uh, the Black Arts Movement in about 65, around that time. Um, and from there, fast forward, going to City College, uh, taking up art, getting involved in starting the uh, first uh, student, Black Student Union with, a, with other folks who were involved. Because, and that was an issue at that time because this was the beginning of the, uh, the Black consciousness movement in the country on a massive scale. And so you begin to define yourselves as African, African-Americans, Black, as opposed to Negro. The colonial name that was defined by the, uh, those who were oppressing us, was trying to keep us in our place. And so there was a lot of resistance to that. Uh, fast forward again, I was about uh, City College for about four or five, uh, uh, 15 minutes away from City College, San Francisco State. I used to go out there all the time because that's what all the cultural activity was. Uh, I recall then they brought Emiria Baraka out there uh, to do theater. And then, and then I got involved with him doing simple props and plays for his for his for for uh, his, uh, his for his different plays during that time community community theater, uh, and it just so happens that I knew Hank Jones as you mentioned. We knew we'd go way back because in the fifth in that period now in the sixties, uh, it was this high levels of frustration as it is today. The police murders always being justified, so you had young blacks who were trying to figure out what what, what we could do to deal with those issues. And I was a part of a group with Hank Jones during that time. And so Hank Jones, they knew of my, my, my skills as an artist in the Black Arts Movement. So they were planning an event and they wanted, and Hank, I must have told him that I could do art. So he contacted me, asked me would I come to the event, event to do the poster. And this event was to bring Malcolm X's widow to the Bay Area to honor her. And I went to that meeting. And uh, when I went to the meeting, he said some brothers were coming over who might do security. And they let them know when they come over to the next meeting. And when they came over, that was Huey Newton and Bobby Seale. And they agreed to do the security. It was after that that I asked them how I could join the, uh, the, the organization. Uh, they, didn't have, they had business cards. And they gave me their business cards. And it was thereafter that I used to call Huey and Bobby in the morning go over to Bob Huey's house, hang out with him. Uh, he'd take me around in the community, introduce me to folks, and we'd go by Bobby's house. That's his early, late January of 1967. That was my beginning of my involvement with the Black Panther Party. Uh, fast forward, uh, April, that was when they did the first uh, newspaper, and it was a tabloid-sized paper. It was about a young man named Denzel Dow who had been murdered in Richmond, California by the police. And they were introduced to the family by another brother who knew them, who thought that the council would be able to help. And so the first player, our newspaper, what we call it, was a legal size sheet of paper, did on a typewriter with a type ball, Marcus as the headline. And so I... Uh, that, when I seen Bobby and him doing, I told him I could help him improve it. Went, got my materials, came back to the location where we were at. They said, uh, you, well, you've been committed, you've been hanging around, but we finished with this one. 
well, we have this whole, we want you to be, you, we want you to work, help us start the paper. It says, it'll be, it'll be about telling our story from our perspective. It'll be like a double-edged sword. It can praise you on the one hand and criticize you on the other. And they say, we want you to be revolutionary artists, and eventually you become the minister of culture. So they had a whole vision in relationship to the paper. And they said, we want to have a lot of uh, photos and, art, and artwork in the paper. And we want to have large headlines as possible for those seniors who couldn't probably read the small type. They can read the headlines. And those brothers and sisters and those who weren't going to read the long drawn out articles to get the gist of what was going on by looking at the photograph and the artwork. So that became the foundation of my involvement in the in, in as a relationship to the production of the newspaper. And the first one I worked on was that first tabloid, which was the second edition. And that was the one where we went to Sacramento to observe the legislation in relationship to them trying change the local gun ordinance because here you have black men controlling the community, understanding the law and articulating the law when arrest was being taken place that the police couldn't deal with. So they wanted to change the black, the local gun ordinances. Now, a lot of people don't know when we went to Sacramento's meeting before that in Oakland that morning where it was explaining why Huey was not going and Bobby was going to lead the delegation. It was also because they felt that it would be a colossal event, meaning that there might be a lot of coverage and, they needed some, and the organization is still in its infant stages that it might need people there to assist, to talk with the press and what have you. So that's why you and Say Dine and Bobby led the delegation. It was also explained that we were not going there for any kind of gunplay or any of that. We was going there specifically for that. And there were men and women that you don't see was a part of that delegation. Denzel Dow, the brother who they helped, uh, family in North Richmond, their family, some of their sisters and brothers were part of that delegation. Then Bobby Seale's wife, Artie Seale, was a part of the delegation. And uh, uh, so it, we all went in the, as a caravan and went to Sacramento. When we got to the state capitol, uh, we had to go because they were legal. And the press just so happened that the, the governor, Ronald Reagan, who became the president of the United States, was on the lawn about 10 feet away having a press conference. Press seen us and left him and came over to where we were. And it was explained that we weren't to say anything. And Bobby Seale was to read executive mandate number one that we had at that time, which it was talking about the concentration camps that were being built for put black people in at that time. What you would talk about now is the prison industrial complex. Thereafter, we went into the Capitol and we were invited in, welcome, because it was legal. The press was following, all of that. And so that was my first uh, colossal event. But before that, we used to do a lot of patrols around in the community, organizing up until the time that I got involved with the paper, as the paper began to pick up, as new people began to come into the organization, it was ex it was said that we want you to focus on dealing with the, uh, the paper, other political materials, all those things that came in 
to make sure that that got done because that was our lifeline to the uh, community. At the height of the paper, it was uh, 400,000 readership over 100,000 readership over 100,000 distribution. We had distributions all over the world. It was because of our paper we went we invited to Cuba in 1967. Uh, Huey Newton wanted me to go, but Bobby lobbied, lobbied against my going because I said, well, Huey, we ain't got nobody to work on the newspaper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was the early phase of mm-hmm. So unfortunately, I didn't get to go on that trip to Cuba, but it was okay. Uh, George Murray, then the Minister of Education, went to Cuba. So we had, when our paper was always about solidarity, we always mm-hmm. had an international section in the middle of our paper to deal with the uh, Africa, Asia, and Latin American news mm-hmm. uh, uh, and the mm-hmm. liberation movements. Even mm-hmm. then, we were invited to, uh, like I mentioned, to Cuba and to many other uh, solidarity with other third world and revolutionary movements around the world uh, during that, er- that early period. Yes. Brother, Brother Emery, there is so much to say and so much to learn from the Panthers and your involvement with it. And we're going to take up some of these issues as we continue this. Thank you so much. Yes. Can we turn to Sister Mary and then Yoel after to speak to your activism and also how the Panthers influenced you? Yeah, uh, well, certainly my gratitude is long for uh, being a part of this project, for being a part of this discussion. Um, I got my paper out. I'm taking notes. I am here for it tonight. So just super, super pumped. And um, my my activism um, started when I moved to Atlanta about 13 years ago. And of course, I came with all the things um, you know, I think I maybe it was like 25 or 26 at the time. And I'd seen different watershed moments happening, you know, um, in the world, but also just the way I grew up um, and really seeing the impacts of the war on drugs um, and my family, uh, what it did to my mom, what it did to my aunt, you know, uh, what it did to my people. Um, and also a lot of, um, yeah, what I just saw happen in community. And there was just so much that I didn't know but I felt oppression. I, I didn't have the language for it, but I just thought it was our fault. Like, why we keep making bad decisions, you know? Um, but it wasn't until I met a woman in a bar one night and she told me she was trying to stop the shackling of black women while giving birth, Paris Hatcher. And um, she was doing something about it, I think is what what floored me. Like, what? You're doing something about it? And that it was happening. Um, and shortly after she... Um, uh, introduced me to Song, and Song um, was doing like a, a mentorship circle, social justice one, like a political education jam, for like six months, and I was, um, you know, invited to participate. And I remember like being in those sessions, and I didn't understand most things that they were saying. Most everything was going over my head. I was like capitalism I like I just never heard none of that you know what I mean like I know none of that yo and I just remember thinking like I never want to talk like them because who can understand this I don't understand this um but I think um but afterwards what I did realize is the way what I felt and how it made me feel and I was like something feels righteous and something feel like gospel and I'm gonna do whatever they asked me to do even though I didn't quite get what it is they were doing. I just was like, put me in coach. And eventually um, 
you know, and I joined the membership and I was given an assignment eventually to go over to Alabama and find LGBTQ people. And what, what were the conditions? How were people loving? What were people willing to fight for? You know, what did people care about? Um, and did that for a while and then began to take up different roles inside of the org as we we're building out um, our chapter formation. And Kaila Mumbabaro was brought into staff. Kai was uh, based in Durham at the time. And um, the few of us who, who had come on to staff, uh, they had, um, <laughs> they would call us the, um, the, the young stallions or the raw stallions, because we were young, young in terms of our political development, but we had a lot of heart. We were willing to try anything. We were like, yo, we going for broke, you know? And Kai um, and Suzanne Farr, who was one of the founders of Song, but both came in um, to really whip us into shape and to pour into us, to pour into us. And I remember I would spend um, weekends like going up to Durham, spending time with Kai, and she'd be like creating art and music is playing. And she would be like, go grab such and such book on the second shelf and read it. And she would have me like um, asking me like, you know, interrogating my politics. Why do you believe what you believe? Why does this make sense to other black people? Why do you think that? And she just, I feel like one, um, the way in which she trained me up and the story she would tell. I remember we were driving back from Sanford, Florida. We were um, supporting some work that the Southern Movement Alliance had did um, in response to uh, the the verdict that had come down around the Trayvon Martin case. And we were on... um, we were on duty to go and case out the place and, you know, do some of the first the level groundwork. And I remember on the way back, she would uh, very specifically, we got it. And we had many conversations, many, many. And some of them, um, I remember at the time too, some of them are recorded. And then there'll be times where she's like, okay, we got to start recording right now. This can't be, all, you know, this can't be all recorded, but you know, she knew, the you know a lot of what she was sharing um her stories her experience um was critical to be documented and i still have it you know it's kind of like one day we'll do something with it but anyway uh she would share a lot around what her experience because her people were panthers in chicago understand right and what it meant as a young person she was like i did my first protest in second grade or something like that you know but she really um was influenced by the work of the panthers in chicago and um I believe joined the party at some point. I'm not exactly sure what years, but she would talk about, you know, what it was like as a black queer woman inside of the formation and what it meant, um, you know, as, you know, in terms of like just what it meant to assert leadership, to be in those spaces, to, to like, you know, be talking about patriarchy, et cetera. And so I think that um, not to mention just a historical memory, of struggle and folks that she'd, um, you know, name she placed in my mind. I'm like, I probably will never meet these people, but like just to hear what the work that they did, the sacrifice, the, you know, um, and then I will also say too, in this, in, in this time, um, I feel like we've been in terms of song and the movement for black lives and a lot of what the work we're doing here locally, you know, as we beg this question on abolition, knowing that uh, it's a build and dismantle flow, you know, with all things. But I feel like there's a lot of inspiration that folks are now looking at the Panther Party to say, you know, all of the survival programs like, whoa, that's the level of type of infrastructure we need to be building and really thinking about, you know, not just like these, we should do the same programs, but also obviously setting our current 
and concrete conditions. But um, there was something I had read somewhere that maybe the and I could be wrong. So Emory, you got to tell me later if I'm if this ain't right. Correct me, because um, I've been holding this in my mind about how the Panthers would say like. And I'm just throwing some numbers out here. 80% of any monies we have is going to go to our survival programs. 20% is going to, you know, any work that we're doing um, that's around the dismantle or like the confrontation safe type stuff. And I'm paraphrasing, but the sentiment of it is essentially that the, the resources that were being used was major, majorly, uh, majority, whatever the word, was it being invested in the build part. And that part right there, and as I'm clocking movement, that's something I'm grappling with. Like we've spent, in time I've been in, you know, we've been like taking on the state, confronting it, you know, changing, trying to move abolitionist reforms and things of that nature. And I'm like, but something is shifting in the air. Um, And so I've been really trying to interrogate that and what that means for movements um, who, you know, a lot of our work is about, you know, confronting uh, confronting power in that way and, and, and moving reforms, abolitionist reforms. And um, so, and I'll just speak briefly because I, I know I've said a lot, but um, in terms of just some of the work that we're doing, so folks like, what the hell are you doing? But I was so excited to be able to reflect on the, um, the Panther Party stuff. But, you know, Song as a political home for LGBTQ Southerners. We know that um, because we live at the intersections of race, class, gender, all the things that our work is to build multi, you know, we're multi-issue organization. And so work song was doing 10 years ago ain't necessarily work we might be doing right now. And so um, in this moment, in this political moment, a lot of um, work that we've been doing is really grappling around abolition. And what does it mean to particularly look at this issue around pre-trial detention? For a few years now, we've, you know, hammered away at like, we need to get rid of that because too many of our folks have been caught up in the system um, just because they ain't got the money. And we see the class struggle that's uh, at play there. But then we also, you know, COVID also just kind of shifted a lot for us as well, right? Um, And not to mention this recent uprising. And just like, I feel like we just continue to fine tune um, where there are opportunities to poke holes and, you know, take chunks out of the system. And so there are different parts of our chapters who are moving mutual aid work. We have a mutual aid program here and um, embedding political education in it. Deeply inspired by the newspaper, we write love letters every time we go feed that's doing like downloading like political political writing and love letters to black people is what we do. It's called love letters. And um, in addition to, you know, bailing people out, but that's minimized the more which, you know, in this uprising, a lot of our work is literally like, how do we absorb people into organization? And, and what is that process? How do we do it well um, and really, you know, doing the training and development necessary for folk to stay in for the long term. Um, and then, you know, all the work that's happening inside of M4BL. Song has been a part of that uh, work for some time now. And uh, the Breathe Act, yes, it was Breathe Act Day. So there's like much, much, much uh, national coordination inside of Fall Into Freedom, which is a seven week um, uh, organizing program, uh, about 400 or so um Organizers across the country are engaged. And uh, I think I had said um, on our uh, prep call the other day that um, Baba Sekou Odinga is part of the Fall of Freedom. And he's like on mm-hmm. the ground in a train. And this is really cool. So it's really cool mm-hmm. to come back full circle. And But there's so much to learn. And just, again, grateful to be here. Thank you, Mary. I have a million questions for you about song, but we'll get to some of them later. Yoel, <laughs> could you speak to your activism and the influence of the Panthers? On you? 
Yeah, sure. You know, I don't even want to talk. I just want to listen and just take my notes and be inspired. And thank you for having me. And thank you for the opportunity to be part of this book and to be in conversation with my elders and um, older siblings here. Uh, my name is Yoel. I grew up in uh, Eritrea. And for those of you who, who may not know, Eritrea is a country in, um, in the northeast of Africa, right by the Red Sea coast. And you know, I came to the United States uh, when I was 15, 16, um, in 2006. But one of the things, um, you know, that are foundational in my political development is the history of my country. You know, Eritrea went through a 30-year armed struggle to get its independence from Ethiopia, um, a neighboring country. And the history of that armed struggle is something that's, you know, pretty much etched in all of us that, um, you know, we're all very aware of the you know the sacrifices that 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 happened in order to get um, our independence and you know there is not a single family in the country that has not um that does not have a martyr in the family right that that, that did not contribute uh, to the armed struggle and all its history on all the things that that happened um you know, is very well linked to our, you know, historical memory and political memory. And that's something we just grew up, not just in the history books, but as you're growing up, you see it because, you know, your uncle is a martyr or your friend's father is like a former freedom fighter. You know, it's all around you, right? It's not something you can duck out and not feel. It's literally in the air, right? And, um, you know, you know, that's the kind of environment that we grew up in. And then, you know, in 98, Eritrea again went to war um, with Ethiopia, you know, over border issues. And we went to war for three years. And, you know, this was at a time when I was like first grade, second grade, third grade. Uh, but memories of that are also like for a lot of us, you know, who were very, very young at that time, who were really children. Um you know, there are things you remember about what happened, right? Um, and then for our older siblings, cousins, the people who actually had to go fight in the war, um, it's obviously way closer to them. But, um, you know, the, the culmination of those things, um, factors existing in my life and the life of, you know, everyone around me was that we understood always very clearly what colonialism means, what imperialism means, what it means to have your freedom encroached upon and, and having to defend that, you know, with arms um, and the kind of organization and discipline that's required, you know, to, to beat colonial forces, to maintain your independence, all of those things were, were not really theoretical exercises. They were as real as they came. And, you know, in Africa, especially post, you know, the 60s, 70s, uh, one of the things we, we've witnessed is, you know, the transition of liberators into oppressors, right? And that's also, you know, part of the political discourse and the contradictions um, that we've had to deal with. And, you know, coming up in, in that environment and then immigrating. But what I did not know, um, you know, in, in that is what was happening to Africans outside of Africa, right? We understood very clearly what the U.S. involvement was in African affairs, that, you know, there's a vested interest, you know, by, you know, the former colonial countries in wanting to divide Africa and Africans and wanting to keep us in constant war with each other. 
um, and, and using the divide and conquer techniques that they use they use everywhere, even amongst us. Um, and we've seen our neighbors, our other countries be tools of imperialism and capitalism. Um, but what I had no sense of was what the condition of African people in America was. And one of the things that, you know, in some ways it really shocked me, right? Because I just simply did not know. Um, and, in, and then the second piece was the depth of it was actually very shocking, right? So when I came to the States, um, you know, a, a couple of years after I came to the States, I, I went to college in, in, in three years or so. Um, and, you know, I was really fortunate and blessed to really be mentored and, and guided and taught um, a defeat of giants, people who were very active in the 60s, people who were members of the party or, you know, movements that preceded the party, um, scholars, people who, who who worked in security for Cesar Chavez and all these different folks that I know, you know, you never really expected to find in a little college town in the middle of California actually ended up being what happened. And, um, you know, I felt very, you know, I feel always very blessed and fortunate that you know, that's where I got to really learn what the condition of African people, what the condition of black people in this country is. Um, and, you know, I had this visceral shock, like shock that, you know, one, we just, you know, we just did not know this is something that was happening, period, right? When you think America and, you know, you're in Africa or any part of the world, you're thinking, you know, this is the land of like, you know, you think money grows on trees, right? Um, and that there's really not much stuff that's going on. Everybody's living a good life, you know, all this stuff. And you come here and I started to like experience and study what it meant to be an African person in this country. Um, and in, in a lot of ways, it was enraging to find out that, you know, as Africans, right, Africans were kidnapped from the continent, came to this country were were enslaved and then that relationship of slave versus ma master actually never ended that its variations change over time but fundamentally the relationship that exists between black people and this country is that of the subject and the subjugated that if you look at who is the poorest people in this country if you go to the prisons who is who are the prisons filled with who have the highest mortality rates, who have all the, all the social indicators of, you know, human beings, what is required for a human being to function in a healthy society. We are absolutely at the bottom of every single human um, metric and indicator and learning, you know, seeing that and learning that and studying that uh, in a lot of ways kind of, uh, you know, catapulted me in, into the movement spaces that I ended up going into. Um, at the time that I, I went to college, there was kind of a robust, you know, student movement because that was, in a lot of ways, for a lot of us, the beginning of the privatization of education where, you know, essentially if you were poor and you can't get financial aid, there's no way for you to go to school, right? Um, it was also around the time when I started to see you know, the execution of Troy Davis happened by the state of Georgia, an innocent black man on death row. Uh, you know, soon after the murder of, you know, Trayvon Martin happened, right around that was when um, the hunger strikes were happening in California prisons, starting in Pelican Bay um, by the brothers who were locked up in the shoe. 
And as I started to see these things and kind of start to experience them, um, it, it kind of led me to the path that, you know, I was going to. And, uh, you know, we got involved in a lot of, you know, youth uprisings and, and movements that happened in, in, in the last five, in the last 10 years. Um, and the thing I think to answer your question about the impact or the influence of the party, what I saw in the structure and the discipline and the work that the party did was something familiar, right? Which is that the way to defeat colonialism, the way to defeat imperialism, the way to defeat capitalism is not through disorganized spontaneous movement, but it is through organized and disciplined organization um, that wages, you know, a clear and, you know, sometimes protracted struggle weaknesses and always building the capacity um, of the organization in order to be of best um, and sharpest service to the people. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Yoel. Boy, you all raised so many issues that we need to continue, but I want to start with this one, right? Because one of the biggest issues of the day centers on racist police violence, right? Um, and how we organize against it. So the concept of abolitionism that Mary just raised, right, is taking hold in a way that for those of us who've been in the movement a long time, in some ways, it's surprising that it's taking hold in this way, right? Um, But in other ways, it isn't because it's building on the work of people like Angela Davis and Ruthie Gilmore and critical resistance from 20 years ago. And on folk like W.E.B. Du Bois, right, who writes in Black reconstruction about what abolitionism is and it's what Mary was talking about or it's not just the dismantling of unjust systems it's also the building of alternatives in its place and yet just like in black reconstruction this completely amazing period right in the 1860s what was being built there's always so much repression against this so I have a number of questions here, but I think I'll start with you, Mary, with if you could speak a little bit more, because I know Song embraces and sees itself as an abolitionist organization, or at least working within the abolitionist genealogy. So if you could speak a bit more about the meanings of abolition and how this fits within this longer trajectory of Black radical organizing. Yes, yeah. So, you know, um, for... You know, Spirit one time uh, um, um, said to me, as we were like grappling with this, and one thing I feel like is is very true, is that the abolition of oppressive systems has always been the freedom dreams of kidnapped Africans in this country. Rather, it was the abolition of chattel slavery, the abolition of Jim Crow, the abolition of redlining, pick one. Like that has always been the demand, you know, and given the way in which we've seen this, uh, the system shapeshift that um, in this context of our circumstance, we're talking about the abolition of the, um, specifically to the abolition of the prison industrial complex, but all of the U.S. empire must crumble, in my opinion. Um, and so when we talk about the, the abolition of the prison industrial complex, what we're saying is that, and just want to shout out to Miriam Kaba, Kai Lumumba Brown, so many folk from critical resistance who have, you know what I mean, like helped us get our little abolitionist lives together and continue to like challenge us in many ways. Um, but what we're saying is that 
we're going to have to figure out different ways to address harm. Real talk. We're going to have to figure out and build other ways of being in one in relationship to each other, but also how we grapple with harm um, when it happens in in terms of um, intercommunal violence and inside of our communities, because we know that if the the only option we have, if that is the only option we have in terms of calling the police or people getting arrested, going to jail and prisons that don't correct, that make things worse, not to mention they've been around so long. And they haven't prevented nor stopped any of these, you know, violence and harm that has happened. Right. So they literally don't work Um, again if redemption and transformation is the goal. And obviously we know that this country and all the um, the corporations and those who profit off of our suffering, that's not their their main goal anyway. Right. And so we and we believe that um, it is our responsibility to craft out a different way in terms of how we deal with harm in this world and in this country. But also um, part of our work is, you know, the dismantle tip is that we know that many of these systems, there are some of folks who like, yo, I'm not going to organize around that. I don't want to have to do with it. We'll just do our thing over here. But the reality of it is, is that many of our people are caught up in the system with the boot on their neck and we cannot not engage Right. And so to me, I'm like, we're figuring out what is that balance of engaging the state, actually going hard to win some stuff for our people that take some of that pressure off. But in addition to really thinking about what are the values that we need to root new systems and new ways of being like, what are those values that we have to? Yeah. Like continue to um, continue to nourish, continue to nourish. Um, and we're deeply inspired by work of so many who are building alternatives, who are saying, actually, let's think about how pods work. Let's think about um, different ways and who should be responding when harm happens, right? Um, And this conversation around defund. Many people, it's so interesting how many people are like, you shouldn't have said it like that. We're like, but we meant what we said. We meant what we said because ain't nobody batted an eye. And And I'm saying nobody very loosely. But when we were, when we, you know, the social safety net has been defunded, public schools and all the things. When we're talking about defunding the very thing that's killing black folk coming up in their house, shooting them while they sleep, then folks want to, you know, get all weird about it, you know. And so we also understand that part of that demand is a call for the moving of public monies and resources, not into institutions that's going to keep gunning down our people, but also and being a dragnet and pouring our people into institutions, but how do we take those money and actually put it in community control budget lines so we can have community control over the systems and things that we need to keep our folks safe and to deal with harm when, you know, when people give each other the smoke because it's humans and we do that, you know? So anyway, uh, yeah, that's that's the current conversation we're having uh, around, around abolition. Yeah. Um, yeah, I want to connect to this by thinking about movement building. And so my next question is to you, Yoel. And as you mentioned here right now, and also in your chapter in the book, right, that you see a necessity for, of course, collective organizing, but also for discipline and for study as well, right? And the African Black Coalition has waged some really intensive um, campaigns, and I've been impressed that some have succeeded, right? These are never easy. Um, And so my question around movement building is, can you speak to what you think is needed at this moment 
the big question in terms of organizing, right, to truly create an emancipatory society? Yeah, that's the million dollar question. Uh, I think, you know, um, it's a really good question because it is something all the movements I've been a part of or I'm in a relationship with are grappling with in terms of figuring out, you know, what's working about the way we're doing things and what's not working. Um, What are our internal weaknesses and, you know, what are the weaknesses that the enemy is able to exploit um, and, you know, divide us and spread us out. Um, I think for me, going back to the Panthers and all the other movements. Um, you know, oppressive forces, whether it be dictator, uh, dictatorships or, you know, over, you know, beating up, uh, beating out colonial governments all over Africa, Cuba, everywhere. The, the best examples that I have seen where we have won, we, the collective, we um, are when there are, when there is an organization that has and clear paths to victory uh, that is willing to use whatever means necessary, as Malcolm says, right? That we are wedded to the outcome of our people's freedom, not to any particular strategy or tactic. Um, this was a huge, like, you know, this is a huge point of, it was a huge point of, you know, debate between Malcolm and Martin and the Panthers and I, I see it manifesting today's too, and, and, and today's movements too. But I think fundamentally, I believe that we need to build mass organizations, right? I think all the prior successful uh, movements that have won, uh, what, what they managed to do is build mass-based organizations that center you know, the masses of our people who are most impacted by the issues we're talking about, right? Um, and that these organizations have a clear chain of command that they are, that they have really thought about the real power of the opposition, the real strengths and weaknesses of the opposition, and have systematically, categorically, and in a protracted way, attack it relentlessly until it caves. I think what I, what I do see um, is that we have for some reason, um, we have significant resistance to organization. We have significant resistance to having a chain of command. We have significant resistance to working out our issues internally, right? And part of it is like, you know, the social media culture, right? When we disagree, all of a sudden, the way to go squash that is on my Twitter and my Facebook. And I'm not even talking to you directly, whom I disagree with. I'm out there talking about this disagreement and people know like who I'm talking about. Right. But for some reason, that's where we decided is the best place to, to deal with our disagreements. And the problem is that one, we have not really managed to successfully build mass-based organizations. I think we've successfully created spontaneous mass demonstrations. That's different from mass organizations, right? We can, like Brianna Taylor gets murdered, George Floyd gets murdered, 
we call for a protest, eight, you know, a thousand people come, that's great for that day. But a month from now, you know, when, I'm, you know, like I need to be able to call a thousand people and have them show up for something, right? But if we're only reacting when one of us gets murdered, and that's the only way we can get a thousand people on the streets, we don't have a mass organization and we're just mobilizing. And, you know, Kwame Ture always talks about mobilization does not take power away from power, right? It creates reforms, but it doesn't carry revolutions. And I think that what is needed in this moment is we need to figure out those of us who say we are organizers, that we're committed to this thing, how to build mass-based organizations, how to instill the kind of discipline that we saw that was in the Panthers, and really, and also, you know, recognizing that the resistance to chain of command and all of that has some validity, right? The fear is that if we identify, this is our chairman, this is our minister of culture, this is our minister of foreign affairs, that the U.S. government will go and assassinate all three, right? And that's true. But that is the enemy's task. Your enemy's job is to always weaken you, assassinate you, destroy you, disrupt you, like what they set out to do with the Panthers. And our job is to do the same thing to the enemy, right? But I think that in some ways we run away from that responsibility and then say, oh, we, but this is the weaknesses with the organization and that's why we don't want to do it this way. I think partially because we fear having to be responsible for doing to the enemy what the enemy does to us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yo, yo, yo. That's a read, honey. That is a read. I completely agree. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Mm. You know, also, you got to understand, too, is that um, when you when you people become inspired, like for yourself, Mary, it's not uh, understanding, but being in spirit in what you were saying, not really understanding the language. Well, that's what you have in the Black Panther Party. Yeah, young people. This was a, that was a youth movement, but you had people who came from all walks of life. Some from my, the my first country was young people from the street. They understood. You and them understood organizing them, even though they were into illegitimate capitalism and what have you. But they were confronted and brutalized on a daily basis because of that. So they knew firsthand and understood. And that's why they want to join. You had others who had the intellectual insight and long-term vision, what have you, you see? But you had to bring all that together. That was the process. That was the process. That's, that's where you have to how to deal with that internally in order to grow and to have home. So we have political education classes. We are critiquing and evaluating uh, our relationship to each other. All those things took place uh, in, in order for us to have survived for the time that we did. You know, even with the external forces coming down on us, we still had to have an understanding of cohesion, what our principles and ideals were about, and unity ideals. Even in maybe different parts of the country where you had chapters and branches, maybe had to respond differently based on the collective connection to the neighborhood and to the community and what sources they had to deal with. You see, but it was still, we had to have a basic structure that grew and evolved out of conditions and situations that exist 
So we're talking about the real world in relationship to a real, real practice, you know. And then you had those in the party who weren't readers, who learned through observation and participation. You see? So you have to understand that. You have to understand those who came in the party, some of, uh, as the party evolved, were older folks who came. Didn't want to take orders from young people. So how do you deal with those issues to move forward? You have to be able to put them in position. You have to see what they can do, those kinds of things. You also have the problem of gender issues. So you have to deal with those. You have to have a position. It may not resolve it, but you put it in position where you can make sure that there can be some constructive criticism and there can be held accountable for their actions, those kinds of things. So that was the foundation of the growth of the Black Panther Party in order to move forward. And written to you, Yule, we also had a lot of information on the uh, struggles in Eritrea. We did have a lot of uh, in the papers doing it in solidarity with the with the liberation movements at that time, as for sure, yes. And another also talk about the Panthers were the first organization to show solidarity with the gay liberation movement. There's mm-hmm. a moment mm-hmm. that Hugh Newton wrote mm-hmm. in 1971, right? And 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 one uh, uh, and 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 uh, papers that showed our solidarity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I know that was amazing at that time. Yes. To be to be doing that. Yes. And so let's keep all these on the table. You know, actually, I don't know, Mary, if you want to chime in right now or if you want me to move to another question. I felt like you were going to pop out of your skin. <laughs> you know, I just I just think it, you know, with some of the diagnosis um, you all that you were speaking to um, a few years ago, some would begin framing it as and talking about it as uh, plagues. Like what are the plagues we were seeing, you know? happening and stirring in movement, you know, a lot of it around cynicism, the infighting, the, um, uh, there's about five of them that we were like, now these things right here, um, and also being very clear, like when we choose to, you know, spend a lot of our time doing that, we also choose not, the, the, there's also, there's choices being made all the time, you know, in terms of what we give our time to, our energy, our capacity to, and service to the liberation of our people. And oftentimes I hear people say, well, that is the work, right? The bringing folk in an org- organization and then, you know, figuring it out together. You were talking about Mr. Douglas, but I feel like, you know, what's that, what's that, how do we right size a good balance, you know, to be um, and struggle with those who are you know, conscious and, and in the programs and in the political education versus what is our role as as conscious focus, commentary, the role of the conscious is to conscientize the unconscious. And so I'll organize and bring folk in, et cetera, et cetera. And so I just feel like um, inside of movement right now that that's something that, you know, I don't think that I can, you know, I don't think there's an organization, no, whatever, but there's many that I'm in relationship with who are experiencing some of these, you know, some of the plagues, some of the plagues. And uh, um, it's helpful to hear like, yo, been like that before, you know what I mean? Because we know that these things are new to this particular iteration of movement. But I think that I'm certainly curious about the ways in which uh, folks um, thought about accountability, the way folks saw and exercised and practiced accountability with one another. What happened? When did folks get put out? You know what I mean? Like, you know, I'm curious about some of those things. I feel like those are some things that we struggle around. 
Yeah, well, well, you know, yeah, we had a youth movement. And it was on the job training. It was yeah. like 50 years of experience. <laughs> yes. It's like we learned this on the job as we evolved yes. along. But you have to understand the mm-hmm. manipulation aspect of things that's coming at you, external forces, you know, and those things is also a dynamic that you have to be mindful of. Knowing what knowing something that's happening at a certain time, but not knowing what it was. You see what I'm saying? Those those things were, were taking place as well. Yeah. So it's the psychological warfare as well that you're dealing with. But you, you have to, that's where your your internal enlightenment and information and education can be the foundation of be, being trying to be as consistent as you can moving forward, you know. And you got those who gonna can go so far. You have to understand that too. But at the same time, there are those who uh, may not intentionally, but doing agent provocateur kind of actions. We got to look at see all those things as well. Mm-hmm. And you got to be able to deal with them uh, in the context of organization and structure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I have a question from the audience that that um, fits in right here, and I'm thinking perhaps one of you could answer this, and whoever wants to, because then I want to ask a question about fascism next. Mm-hmm. So um, from Steve Lee. What is the relationship of leadership in an organization and the democracy in the organization necessary to develop the members to get the best ideas? What's the relationship between leadership and sort of democracy? Well, let me in leadership has to be remindful of the, of the uh, everybody in rank and file mm-hmm. in the organization. You know, mm-hmm. everybody got, that's why you have, that's called, you know, Democratic Central in the context of coming together. And mm-hmm. that's why we have a constructive evaluation, criticism, self-criticism, you know, uh, in, in place. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and accepting it, the way you're painful or you like it or you just like it. If it's true, you got to accept it and try to correct it, you know, those kinds mm-hmm. of things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's, you know, that's the only way you can deal with that. And still, you have to understand we're in a post-revolutionary kind of, uh, a pre-revolutionary kind of thing. We have transcended. People come into organizations with the baggage that they were inherited, grown with, inhabited with, addicted to, all that. Mm-hmm. You have to cleanse that out. That's a process. And that's not an easy process, but it's an ongoing process. So that means you have to have apparatuses in the structure of the organization to try to work and deal with those things as you as you as you move as you go forward. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to ask a question about fascism, right? No, I think not surprising <laughs> the context for my question around right in this moment, it's becoming increasingly clear. Um, I think it's in becoming increasingly clear. Metaphoi says, I want people to understand what's happening. And I said, be careful what you wish for, because come November, we may not have to be, everyone may get so clearly what we're talking about, this rising fascism that's happening, right? And this rising explicit white supremacy. So the Panthers, again, have lessons for us, right, Emery? I mean, they organized the United Front Against Fascism Conference in 69. 5,000 people came to Oakland. And out of that emerged the National Committee to Combat Fascism, which took place in many cities across the nation. And so 
Um, you know, this could be to Emory, but this could be for Yoel and Mary too about what what do we need to be? One, we can think about what can we learn from the Panthers about fighting fascism. But the other question is, what do we need to be doing right now to be organizing against fascism and this rise of white supremacy? You have to deal with it in the context of now. You can be inspired with and be inspired by what historically mm-hmm. took place, but mm-hmm. you have to be able to begin to deal with it in the context of now. Um, even because when you even talk about fascism, some people got it 50 years, thinking about 50 years ago. But this is a whole other ca- concept. Of what's, this is modern day mm-hmm. system that you're looking at today, you know. Yeah. Any time that you have institutes talking about exceptionalism, you know, from one president to the next, that's that's kind of uh, that's 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 signals right there. That's what, what what's what, what what's going on, you know. I mean, when you got just don't care, you know, when you got. Homeless on top of homeless, the middle, so-called middle class becoming homeless. All, all this stuff is happening. The, the prison industrial complex, you know what I mean? Immigration, you know what I mean? All these things, issues, you know? Uh, and and the, the, you know, the, the, the abuse, the abuse of power, all that. It's just, that's what, this is fascism. Existing right now, right this minute, as we as we sit here, it just—I mean—it's just that because we live in a, a so-called country that maybe gives the illusion, gives the illusion that everything is all right, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you when you go, you know, you when you go into the interior, you see enough, you see the real world, yeah. So we need a mechanism in relationship to how we can uh, communicate this visually and language to uh, so people can they understand it, they feel it, they know it. But it's what? How do we deal with it? As you say, how do we? What we're gonna come up and deal with? People know have it. They may not call it that. They call it something. It's a feeling. It's a deep knowing. But how do you deal with it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And right. it's, not, it's not no one answer. It's going to be many. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about this earlier. Um, and I, so I, I just went to the dictionary to see what, what fascism, what the definition of fascism is. And it says here that it's a political philosophy, movement, or regime that exalts nation and often race above the individual. And that stands for a centralized autocratic government headed by a dictatorial leader severe economic and social regimentation and forcible suppression of opposition, right? So if we take a look at this, you know, definition of fascism, this is a country, you know, and the reason why I'm making this point is to make it clear that America is not fascist because Trump is president, Mm -hmm. that America is a fascist country through and through from its inception, that this is a country that was established by stealing land that belonged to a, to a different number of nations and that was established on the stolen labor of kidnapped Africans, right? Because it felt that this should be a land of white people, often race above any individual, right? 
that it is a centralized and autocratic government because the policies of this country, as it relates to the rest of the world, have not changed in, in any significant way under any president, right? That the foreign policy of this country towards Africa, Latin America, Asia has always remained functionally the same, which is to ensure the supremacy of this one nation, right? Established on stolen land by stolen labor. And so, you know, I say that to say, and George Jackson makes this point a lot of times when talking about like participation and, and the electoral politics is that this is a fascist country, not because there's a Republican president or a Democrat president, but because its actual infrastructure, its actual foundation was created on fascist basis, on the supremacy of capital and white people, right? And, and you know, to the question that Baba Emery raised, you know, is you know the solution is what Sister Mary said earlier, which is when we're talking about abolition, we're not just talking about you know the prisons and the criminal legal system because you can't really abolish that system without abolishing capitalism. And if you abolish capitalism, this entire empire as it currently exists will no longer be. Yeah. So maybe the issue is how do we take power without taking power? How do we change the system without being inclusion in the in the system? How do we begin to shift? I mean, that's that's the that's the practice that has to be implemented. And you can only do that by theory and practice. Practice and theory, correcting whatever that vision. And if there are those who have that can inspire by what they do, then others will be inspired by it and maybe carry it off. So it's also that takes on the fact of people may agree to disagree in a movement, but they will do some of the same things that they see that are being achieved and successfully or have the possibility, you see. I mean, there were many people who didn't agree with what we were doing, but they seen the, in the spirit of those programs that they began to implement them themselves, mm -hmm. you see. And yes. So what a good example of what you're just saying is um, when you say to people, you're talking about everyday folk, not when like the U.S. is like, oh, y'all got free breakfast, that mm -hmm. program, we're going to do that school lunch. Not that. That's not what you're saying. Mm -hmm. You're talking about what mm -hmm. everyday folk see a see a, a organizing project and like, hey, let's do it too. And you begin to build scale because folks replicate, bring nuance, whatever, whatever. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was even in the context of the system itself. That was really why you had the free breakfast program. People demanded that in the school. People mm -hmm. demanded that. When we talked mm -hmm. about kids going to, uh, going to school hungry because their mother had to make the decision, parent had to make the decision or paying the bills or putting food on the table or, buying, or paying the rent. You know what I mean? And so kids mm -hmm. couldn't work because they were malnourished and couldn't focus. Kitchen deficits, mm -hmm. all that because of not having a nourish, nourishment and what have you. When you articulate and you communicate it, people can understand that. Then if you have those who are like-minded or even understanding and want to help transform that, then you can probably get something together to do that. Mm -hmm. you know? That's just on that level, you know, in that context. I think that some of what made the Panthers so dangerous, right? And why repression came down so hard is that they were doing all of this. They were doing 
the building that Mary was talking about, right, with all of the survival programs, but they weren't, as you guys are saying, these programs just to do good. They were done to reveal the contradictions of racial capitalism and colonialism, right? To show, for example, why the Panthers could do so much with so little while the U.S. government does so little with so much. Um, but they, there were so many elements to this. The political education was part of the Panthers, right? The self-defense was part of the Panthers. The, you know, the, the reading, the intensive reading and study of internationalist thinkers from Africa, Asia, Latin America, and the U.S., right, and, and elsewhere. Um, and so they were really diving deep and doing deep critique. And so I want to get to um, a question that emerged in our prep meeting, um, which is about the influence of internationalism, right, and Pan-Africanism. And you know, Kwame Ture says, right, Stokely Carmichael, the highest expression of Black power is Pan-Africanism. What that means exactly and what you think is something we can take up. But here's the second part of what I want to ask, right? People sometimes see a contradiction or an impossibility between Black liberation, between national liberation, between what people would say nationalism, even revolutionary nationalism on one hand, and on the other hand, internationalism, especially as it's rooted in anti-colonialism, right? Especially in, as it's rooted in third world solidarity. And clearly the Panthers lined up on the side that you do both, right? You, you do the, the national liberation and you do the internationalist struggles. Um, and so I'm wondering what you think about this contradiction and if you think it's still relevant or if it's an outdated model. And then Besides the nationalism, internationalism question, the question of how nationalism lines up with Black queer feminism. So let me start with Mary, and then we can we can go from there. You know, and I'm I, I raise this because this is something I'm, I'm literally like I need a solid answer. But in my heart of hearts, I thoroughly believe that um, that um, and what Kwame Ture expressed in terms of what the highest form of black power, and I would even say black love, you know, is um, is Pan-Africanism. And I think that, one, because I feel like, you know, if we understand that genocide is not just the killing of bodies, but memory, and we know that the, the nature of our circumstance and our struggle here in the U.S. certainly is deeply rooted in goes back to like we can map it to the continent that we also that that feels um like part of it has to be a part of our, our of our equation of getting free right we can't be calling for and demanding a thing here that's going to um, reap suffering of our brothers and sisters and siblings and comrades across you know the globe and so I feel like uh, that's a responsibility, particularly being inside of the belly of the beast. And I think, it, you know, it, 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 there are obviously some difficulties in navigating that. You know what I mean? Like, as um, Uel was saying, you know, like, you, you know, like, I know the struggle in the U.S. of black people was like that, you know, um, and being able to build uh, a depth of relationship where we can be able to give you know, on a concrete assessment of really what time it is, um, I think is important because then it also right sizes what then 
uh, what does solidarity really look like? What do we have? What do we have access to? Um, and what can we be pouring and giving to each other in order to, you know, be able to, um, yeah, to get free together. But I think where I, again, where I get, um, when it comes to this question around nationalism and I, I would love, love, love for any one of you who have some insight on this, but this is what I'm grappling with. Um, does black queer feminisms, um, and I understand it and see it as an ideology, um, understand that is national, is nationalism um, part of the, is, is that a viable, I'm like, am I in contradiction? Am I, is that not, could I not want that as a black queer feminist? I'm not quite sure, but I'm like, I'm a black woman in America uh, I'm gonna want whatever the hell I want, and I can hold the contradiction. But I certainly believe that um, that I believe in the beloved community, right? And that vision of creating an, uh, a different value system in the way in which all oppressed and exploited people can be in right relationship to each other. I deeply believe that, and I also believe beloved community is um, is a means to um, black people. Um, experiencing a level of of um of liberation in terms of an, of an understanding of seeing ourselves as a nation and i also mm-hmm. uh, land-based as part of that right. and how we right. understand territory not just you know not like the borders in which you know these weirdos think about it but like how do we understand territory um and right. i feel like that is that has to be a part of the equation i feel like we Right. deserve to be able to explore and we need the space to govern ourselves. We need mm-hmm. the space to want to figure it out who we be with each other. And those mm-hmm. are the things that I'm curious about what other folks um that comes to mind for other people. And yeah. I know thank you. Yes, you know I am not doing a great job on time text, but we have about six minutes left. So I want to go to Yoel in about a couple of minutes and then end with Brother Emery, and maybe at the very end, we can hold up those books that we're reading, and we'll just close out like that. So it's 524. We have six minutes. Gotcha. Joel? Yeah, no, and uh, those are absolutely great points. One of the things I've come uh, to learn and something I didn't know before coming to the United States and, you know, having been ingrained in the, in the Black liberation movements here um, one of the conclusions I've kind of arrived at um, is that so long as the U.S. empire exists as it currently does, there is going to be no peace or no justice to any African anywhere in the world. You can be an African in the continent. You can be an African here. You can be an African in Brazil or in Cuba or anywhere else in the world that, you know, the existence of this empire as we know it is predicated on the misery, murder, exploitation of African people wherever we are. We are the source of eternal labor and exploitation, right? Mm -hmm. If that's the case, then the best allies those of us in the continent have to actually, you know, weaken and dismantle this empire are the Africans here. Because if black people in this country seceded from America, for instance, right? There would be no NFL, there would be no NBA, there would be no <laughs> there would be nothing, right? The actual foundations that make this country stand and economically, socially, politically, and you know, in, in every aspect of life in this country is predicated on the fact that 
there's black labor to be exploited and there are black people to be caged and that there are black people to be murdered, right? If you remove all those things, then what does this country actually stand on, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, as an African on continent, I'm catching hell because America has enough arms to bomb me, right? But if America cannot exist here because whatever it is exploiting in order to accumulate the kind of wealth and military power that it has, you know, I, I have some sort of relief here. And for black people here, Africa, we are African people, right? That's, that's the starting place. Right. You know, mm -hmm. No matter how you want to cut it up, at the end of the day, we have one source from which we come that have a linked fate because of who we are, because we come from one place that our fate, no matter where we go, is linked, right? And so because of that, Africa should always be the home base for any African, no matter where we are, right? And that that's the place from which to mount struggle, that's the place to which to seek refuge, right? And I think, you know, uh, to Sister Mary's real point, which is that black people in America, we need a place to govern ourselves, right? I think, you know, nation building is like, I think I see it as a never ending process, right? All the nations we are in, in, in our own countries, mm -hmm. continent and other places, you know, they're not, you know, they are governed by black people and they, you know, by Africans in Africa and all this stuff. But all the problems that you see here reflected at the communal level are also there, right? But mm -hmm. the point is that that is an internal development process. Mm -hmm. you know, I think that, you know, our internal contradictions, we have to deal with them and we have to correct for them internally away from the enemy's constant intervention, the enemy's constant using of our divisions, our internal inequalities, inconsistencies, contradictions as a way to actually break us apart, right? But that internally, like, you know, what we were talking about with criticism and self-criticism, there shouldn't be any mercy spared, I think, internally amongst us in our quest to be different types of human beings than we are now. Power, Yoel, powerful. Thank you. Emery, you have the closing word, but it's two minutes. <laughs> You're on mute. You're I think mute. you're on mute. <laughs> I, I think I think I just I like to say we have to continue to uh, educate, to liberate, to inform, and enlighten, and particularly the young people. It's the youth, the youth, who is going to make this shift, this change. And mm -hmm. and the youth are aware and are conscious, even though we may not think the young babies are. And we just take, we can take a simple example is that they talk about Black Lives Matter. Now, on mm -hmm. the words, language, that's like all power to the people was. It's mm -hmm. transcendent. Just the word and the organization, it's the whole mantra for liberation. And at the same time, when they all, as young people who are playing sports and playing that, and you got these babies taking knees, that's a very powerful statement. When they took their Kaepernick knees, people don't look at that. They look at that as something else. But that was a powerful young people, little five, six, seven, eight years old. That means they're being enlightening and informed. So we have to nourish that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Emery Douglas, Mary Hooks, Yoel Haley. 
the reason that this could be such a compelling and thoughtful and insightful and analytic conversation is because you guys are serious about love for Black people and about Black liberation. You are organizing, not just mobilizing, right? You're thinking about movement building and you're studying and analyzing conditions and figuring out how we move forward. These are not easy questions, but I thank you so much. And I think it's fitting to end with putting up the book that we are reading and showing them. This one, this one, this is a goodie. Okay, all right. And I think we are out of time. Thank you all to the virtual audience as well. We'll continue the conversation. La lucha continua. Yes, peace and love. All right, thank you. All power to the people. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.